Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Today, we're going to continue our message series on the book of Genesis. And we are currently in week four. We ended last week on Genesis chapter nine, um, and that was where Noah brought forth his shame and one of his sons exposed it and the other two sons uh, covered it. Now, after Genesis nine, we have Genesis 10, and Genesis 10 is a genealogy. It is all of the nations that descended from Noah. But what's interesting about 10 and 11 is they're not necessarily in chronological order. If you were to read 10 and then find all of the nations of the world that came about, you would get the sense that the whole world was being filled up with all of these nations. And then you come back in 11 and you find that that's not actually the case. It seems like all of the people of the world world are kind of gathering around in one place, and they're not scattering. The reason why that is is because uh, Moses, the guy who wrote Genesis, he records um, 10 as a way to help us understand that everybody in in the entire world is rooted in one family. That's the principle of showing the genealogy, that to this day, every race, culture on earth has its roots down to one family, Noah and his sons. Everyone is connected through the bloodline of Noah and his sons, okay? Now, so that's essentially what 10 is telling us. 11 tells us how they were scattered across the earth. So 11 is kind of explaining how 10 took place. So if you think about it this way, 10 tells us the who, and 11 tells us the how, okay? So 10 tells us who in the world was existing, by the family lineage, and 11 tells us how those people in the world eventually got to the entire world. Does that make sense? So we're not gonna read 10 today, we're not gonna read all the family lineage, it's about as fun as looking at somebody else's uh, trips to a vacation spot, or um, looking at somebody, you know, the pictures of somebody's family line. Um, So I'd encourage you to read that on your own, have some real fun with those names, because some of them are pretty out there. But we're going to pick up this morning in Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along. If you don't, we're going to put them up here on this screen today because technology. So Genesis 11.1 starts like this. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us, who's us? That's the entire council of God, the Trinity. 
go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. It later will be resettled and referred to as a more common name, Babylon, because the Lord there confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them from the face of all, all the earth. So after the flood, Noah's children had children. And as I said, that's what we see in chapter 10. Many families were born, but of all the families that were born, humankind still had the same command from God that, was, that existed in Genesis 9. We read it last week, 9 once. God told Noah and his descendants, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Okay, that was the command. So God told the people, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Go out and fill the entire earth. Okay, so that was the command. One of the descendants of Noah was this guy named Nimrod. He pops up in the middle of Genesis chapter 10 as we're going through the genealogies of Noah. And what he did was he rallied the people um, uh, in this place that is, is right now found in modern day Iraq. So if you open up a map and you're looking at the Middle East, this is in um, the country of Iraq. And he tells these people to gather together and build a tower. And what he says to them is the purpose of us building this tower is to make a name for us, lest we disperse over the face of the earth. You see the, the contrast or the issue here? God says, I want you to disperse and fill the earth. And mankind, just in a very few uh, generations, says, you know what? I don't think that you've got our best interests in mind. We as humans have a better plan. So even though you as God are commanding us to disperse and fill the earth, what we would like to do is to rally together so that we don't disperse across the earth. And what we'll do is we'll build towers and cities and an empire and fame more than we will follow your commands. So after Noah, Noah has this son named Ham. Ham has a son, and this kid's son's name is Nimrod. So Nimrod was actually uh, Ham's, or uh, Noah's grandson. So the generations haven't actually gone that far. And what happens is that when God commands them to, get, to, to scatter across the earth, and Ham says uh, uh, to his father, um, no, uh, I'm gonna mock you, and I'm gonna shame you. Uh, because of your sin. And Noah turns on him and curses his, his line and his family lineage and essentially says, if you're gonna live like this, then you're gonna produce offspring who also don't value God's command. So I'm warning you, and he does this through a curse. We see that curse start playing out in exactly like one generation. Because Nimrod stands up and he rallies people and the first thing he does when he gets power is says, let's do the opposite of what God says. And I bring this up for one reason and one reason only. I want you to see how far-reaching your individual sin is and how quickly that stuff can get passed down to another generation. Now, we know that Christ 
forgives us of our sin and washes our sin clean. And that means sin that you've committed in the past and sin you're gonna commit in the future. You were declared not guilty, but there are habits and there are traits and there are sins that if you let into your home and you decide this is okay for our home, you absolutely will pass down to your children. There are some things that some of you in here don't even cross your mind as a struggle But some of you in here, there are things that to this day still own you in some ways in your heart because that's how you watched your father or your mother live. You follow? There are decisions that you have to make as a parent, as a homeowner, as a citizen of this country that fall in line with scripture and what God says and not what this world says. And if you don't, you will create a culture of sin in your family line and the culture that you are a part of. And this is just another example of seeing that. Nimrod was the way he was because of the way his father was. So he rallied everyone together and said, this is gonna be our rallying cry to do the opposite of what God tells us to do. So what the Lord did was he came down, and what's interesting about this phrase in Hebrew about him coming down is this phrase reads like a man bending down into the grass to examine a tiny little flea. That's how this reads in Hebrew, and it's written that way by Moses on purpose to help us understand that in some ways we kind of reshape God into our own image, and, 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 and he, he looks and smells and thinks and, and is, is the size of like us. But what Moses is trying to communicate is that the Father, God, he sees what we're doing down here in such a way that when he, like, he comes down to it, it's almost like where you would be at the, at the beach bending down and examining like a tiny little grain of sand. That's how much bigger and much more sovereign and much more in control than he is. And he's so in control that he sees mankind refusing to obey God's word and seeing all the unity wrapping around sin and essentially saying everybody's on the same page and and the same page is let's remove God from the book, let's rewrite the rules and let's say that whatever we want is best. Let's essentially build towers that go up to God and say that, look, God can come down here but uh, we can just as easily go to you. We're equal with you, God. Yeah, you can stoop down to us, but we can also build towers that that go into heaven and we'll come up to you. We're on equal playing field with you. When God comes down in the Holy Trinity and we see the the entire um, host of God coming down and examining him, what he decides to do on that day is to scatter the language. And it's from this point forward that you see in 10 all the nations of the earth come about. This is where we get our Um, our lines that we like to draw on the sand as far as culture and race and skin color and different language. This is where it started. It started because when we were in one accord, in unity, what we wanted as as the human race is to defy God. So God said, I'm gonna spread all the nations across the earth. You're gonna obey my command whether you want to or not. And he spreads them across the face of the earth. Now what we see here in Babel, this scattering on this specific day, 
while from this day forward, everyone starts speaking different language, that desire inside the heart of man doesn't leave because that desire is rooted in sin. It's rooted in disobedience. And just because we can't speak the same language doesn't mean we don't still want all the same things. I may not be able to speak the language of this other person over here, but deep down inside of our heart, we both want the same thing, our way. I may not understand this culture or speak this language, but, but deep down in our hearts, we're both plagued with the same sin and we both want the same thing. None of God and all of us. And we see this play itself out all the time. We see it in our families when we decide to care more about comfort than obedience to God. We see it play out in our churches when we're more concerned with an experience on Sunday morning than what God tells us we're supposed to be doing when we gather. And we see it a lot when our hope is resting in elected officials instead of our times of prayer. We're convinced that the way to solve the world's problems is just to elect the right person. We just gotta find the right person. We just haven't found him yet. The Bible tells a very different story about how our problems are solved. The heart cry of the people from Babel hasn't changed. Our heart wants to build new things rather than submit to God's things. That's it. We're convinced that the answer lies in some new discovery or some new technology or some new way of thinking. The old ways are broken. The old ways don't work. We have to turn to new things in order to solve new problems. I got news for you. According to the word of God, there are no new problems. They're old problems wearing new masks. And they're solved the same way that they have been saved or solved for the last 2,000 years. A complete walking away from the problems and the culture and the world, dying to that flesh and turning to the invitation that Christ gives us to accept the brand new kingdom and being born again. The only way that things will get solved is for the heart of man to be born again. We see it in Babel, and we see it in the New Testament. Let's continue with our story, and I'm gonna jump to chapter 12, and the reason why is because after this story of Babel, we see the descendants of Shem and Terah, and out of Terah, what we find is this guy named Abram. Abram is gonna be kind of the centerpiece of our story moving forward. He's described as a man of faith because he trusted God, and he did some pretty interesting things as far as following what God told him to do. And I wanna start off with the call. I'm just gonna read a couple verses. We're gonna to go to chapter 12 and read one through three, and then we're gonna jump over to Romans real quick. So uh, just follow me here. So now after the Tower of Babel, all these descendants have spread across the face of the earth. We've got lots and lots of descendants, and one of these descendants pops up and his guy's name is Abram. Abram's dad was an idol maker. Abram was an idol worshiper, and this is where we pick up the story. Verse 12, or chapter 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, just out of the blue, just speaks to Abram. Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you've got an entire world who's turned away from God. And in that world is this guy named Abram. I don't want you to read this story and think that um, this is kind of a Noah situation where like Abram is the one lone guy who's got his eyes fixed on the Lord. No, Abram was part of the problem. He was not a remnant. He was in the culture. And in God's love and mercy reached down, he called Abram out of this world to leave this world behind and invited him to join into a promise that would yield um, descendants and blessings that the world he was a part of could not offer him. That's the offer. I'm not calling you out because you're perfect. I'm not calling you out because you're special among all these people. You're part of the problem and you're in the middle of the mess, but because I love my people, I am choosing to love you and call you out of this mess. And what I want from you is to just respond by faith and trust what I'm saying. Shortly after the scattering of Babel, God called Abram out to leave his country, this is what he says, to leave his family and to live totally dependent on God. Basically, I want you to come out and walk without knowing. I want you to repent of this life and this world, and I want you to walk by faith. But before we dissect that anymore, and the reason why I stopped at three, is I want to understand with you um, what the world had really gotten to. What was God calling Abram out of? What did the world look like? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter one what the world looked like. So if if you'll just put, you know, if you've got one of these fancy ribbons, go ahead and put it in there. If you've got, you know, a finger, just kind of keep a finger in there and then flip over Romans one, we'll put this on the screen too. But this is what most theologians believe that when Paul was writing to Romans, to the Romans in Romans chapter one, what he's recording in these verses I'm about to read to you, 21 through 25, was actually the culture at the time of Abraham. This is what the world had decided when God called Abraham or called Abram out. So Romans 1, 21 through 25. After Babel, this is what the world looked like. <clears throat> Romans 1, 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, essentially idols. And this is what Abram's father was building. Therefore, because of what the earth had decided to do, therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So after Babel, God made a decision to abandon the nations and allow them to walk in the sin that they so desperately wanted. God scattered them across the face of the earth and collectively, even though they were scattered, that desire for them to turn from God did not leave and they still wandered farther and farther away from God. 
And God got to a point, according to Romans 1, where he said, I'm going to turn my creation over to their own desires. But as he turned the nations over to their sin, he also made the decision to call one man out of this culture that was worldwide. Yes, all of the all the countries and civilizations live in different places and they had different languages, but all of them had the same heart cry. We don't want God. So what God did was he abandoned those nations and he called Abram out of them. And he did that so that he could make a nation for himself. See, up until the point um, where uh, the children of Israel cross the Red Sea and they're standing with Moses at the mountain and God says, I'm gonna make you a nation. Up until that point, the only way that nations had ever been formed was a group of people rallied together and they made some charter and they wrote some things down and they drew out what a flag looks like and they figured out what their laws were and they made a decision, okay, we're a nation because we say we're a nation. But on that day, when God made Israel a nation, It wasn't because Israel freed themselves and made a charter and decided what their rules and laws were and what their flag would be and who would be in charge. It was because God did all of the work. God brought them out of slavery, brought them across the desert, brought them to a mountain, gave them their own laws and said, I will be your leader and from this day forward you are a nation because I say you are a nation. And that moment has its roots in this moment. When God called Abram out and told him he was gonna be blessed and have descendants and have a nation, that was the fulfillment of the promise that we read about in Exodus. Now, why is all this important? This is important for one reason, because it reminds us who is in control. It's him. He's the one responsible for the call, the promise, and fulfilling the promise. And we get in our minds so often that, okay, well, he's on the call, and he's responsible for the promise, but man, fulfilling the promise, that's on my shoulders. I got to do these things for God, because if I don't help him out in some way, he can't do what he promised he will do. That's not what this Bible teaches This Bible teaches us that God is all sovereign and that he, fa- he always finishes the works that he starts. Every word, that pre- every word that proceeds out of his mouth is going to be finished and completed according to the way that he wants it to. All things work together for the good of those who love Christ and those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because God is in control and he works all things together for the good. He's in control. And like the people from Babel, we're convinced that we are, we are pioneers of our own destiny and we make our own decisions and all we have to do is just leave God behind in our minds. Well, you may not think much about God, but he thinks a lot about you. And he established your course and your life from the foundations of the earth. Nothing catches him off guard. There is nothing happening in your life right now that he did not know was going to happen when he formed grass and clouds and trees. And when he breathed life into Adam, he knew this was coming. And so the call of Abram is is an important reminder to us about the way that God likes to work things together for his good, for his glory. 
And we see it in the call of Abram. And the call is, I want you to abandon your culture. I want you to leave your world. I want you to leave your family behind. And I want you to accept my promise that there is something better than what you have right now. Forsake what you know in your past and follow me. Now, this call of Abram mirrors the discipleship call in the Gospels. When Jesus is walking the earth, what does he do when he comes up on a disciple? He says, follow me. And that invitation is loaded with a lot of stuff. It's not just, hey, why don't you follow me? We're going to go grab some, uh, some pita later. We're going to sit around and drink tea and talk about how I'm God. The invitation to follow me is leave your family. Leave your career. Leave everything that you know and everything that you love. Leave, leave your own identity behind and follow me on the promise that I'll give you a new better one. That is the invitation that Christ gave the disciples. That is the invitation that God is giving Abram. And that is the invitation that he gives us today. And many of us have already responded to that invitation. The invitation to forsake and to leave behind for this new and this better life. The problem is not the responding to the follow me. The problem is responding to the leaving behind. And that's where most of us are sitting here today. Most of you are not struggling with the, I've followed Christ. Most of you are on the same page and you say, okay, I've, I've, I've left behind that old life. I'm not doing that anymore. The problem is what you chose to bring with you in your backpack on that journey. And what is currently sitting in your pockets, what is currently in your home that you brought with you on that decision to follow Christ, that's the struggle. It's not to leave home, it's what you decide to bring with you. And this is what you constantly trip over because you're convinced, all right, I'm following Christ and I'm on the same page with him. He's demanding things of me and I'm doing this. And all of a sudden you bump up against a personality trait that you're convinced is just who you are. This is the way I was. I was born this way. And then Christ tells you, yeah, I know you were born that way, but I told you to be born again. And then you're like, oh yeah. So this thing about me has got to go. Yeah, it's got to go. If you want to look more like me, it's got to go. And you don't know when these things are going to pop up. Sometimes they don't pop up until a global pandemic hits. Sometimes it doesn't pop up until your entire Facebook news feed is filled with things that you disagree about. And all of a sudden there's a tension in your heart that says, Maybe I'm a little more rooted in this world than I thought I was. Maybe I care about this world more than I care about this. Maybe I'm spending more time letting other people who are paid to tell me how to think. Maybe I'm letting them tell me how to think rather than letting this word tell me how to think. And these moments happen all throughout your life. And at these moments, you have to decide, all right, this is the thing I brought with me, this attitude, this way of thinking, this behavior. This is the thing that I brought with me. And I'm going to have to decide now, do I want to hold on to it because it gives me an identity? Or do I want to let it go and fix my eyes on the promise that's coming my way? And that promise is I get a new identity. Is my old identity, is it, is it, is it so valuable that I will hold on to it while I'm trying to also grab this new identity? You can't have both. You're going to have to let go of something. 
This is what's happening with Abram. He followed the call, but he had a hard time leaving behind things. Let's go to verse 4 in chapter 12. Verse 4 says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Awesome. Hard stop. Praise God. Nice job, Abram. All right, we're on the right track. God said, go, you went. Good. And Lot went with him. No, 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 no. See, the promise was to leave behind your kindred, your family, your country, leave everything behind and go to this new place. Got it. Okay, cool. I'm following. And my family's coming too, right? Yes? No, that's not the promise. Do you see where I'm going with this? He had no problem leaving and neither do we, but it's the things we bring behind. It's the stuff we bring with us into the new season. Abram brought Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, that wasn't part of the plan, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they sent out to go to the land of Canaan, Uh, Canaan is uh, uh, the word for Israel before there's uh, in Israel. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, and that time the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give you this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country and to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still toward the Negev. So Abram obeyed the first command to leave, but he brought Lot with him. And the reason why was because his allegiance to his past was something that was really important to him. I'll I'll say why in a minute. But this allegiance to his past that was so important to him is going to cause him unbelievable suffering moving forward. Now, why did he do it? Why did he bring Lot? Because God promised to bless his descendants and Abram and Sarai were barren. They couldn't have children. So God comes and says, I want you to come out of this land and I'm gonna bless your descendants. Abram knows I don't have descendants. I've got one nephew, Lot, so maybe that's what God means. So in order to fulfill God's promises, I'm gonna have to help him out a little bit and give him a way to fulfill that promise. He's technically my heir, he's technically my descendants, so I'll bring Lot with me, and that's how God's gonna fulfill the plan. That decision is going to cause him unbelievable turmoil, but he made the decision because he felt like in order for God to make a great nation, and Sarah was barren, that he had helped God. So to fulfill the promise, Lot was going to be the heir of God's promise. What does this teach us? It teaches us that when God calls you to leave everything behind, what he means by everything is everything. That partial obedience isn't really obedience. He does not need you to bring a backup plan so things will work out. He does not need you to help him in fulfilling the promise. 
When he says leave everything, he wants you to leave everything, including the things of your past that he knows are going to bring you pain that you think you'll need in order to fulfill the promise and the place he's got you to, but he knows is only going to bring you pain and is asking you to leave behind. But the other reason why he asks you to leave your past behind is because he knows that when he ultimately fulfills the promise without your backup plan, God is going to get the glory and not you. Because if Abraham had, Abram had brought Lot and God did fulfill the promise through Lot, then did we really even need God for the promise in the first place? Abram did the work. Abram provided the, off, the, the sacrifice, or not the sacrifice, but uh, Abram provided the way for the promise to be fulfilled through his heir. But God said, no, no, I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. It's going to make you so, it, it, here's what I need from you, nothing. And I'm going to make something, I'm going to make a nation out of nothing. And Abram's like, no, nah, I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> so how about I bring these two things and that will help you along. What does this sound like? This sounds like our prayer life. This sounds like us bartering with God. Here's some things that I need. God says, I already know what you need. Yes, I know you're God. I do know that you know that what I need is what I need. But also, here's a couple things that maybe you've not noticed. So I just want to bring these to your attention. God's like, I know those things too. Cool, so then you know that the only way for this to work out is if I do these two things, right? God's like, nope, I don't want you doing those things. But if I don't do those things, they won't work out. If you do those things and they work out, then you get the glory. But if you choose to follow me and leave all of that behind, and what I mean by leaving behind is your desire to meddle in God's plans and manipulate things so that you get your way, if you choose to leave that behind, what you're gonna get as an inheritance is so much greater than the glory of you standing on a tiny little pulpit that you built preaching about how good God is when really underlying your message is just how great you are. Leave it all behind. Leave your pride behind, leave your past behind, leave your experience behind. Don't stand on what you know or what you think or where you've been or how much you have. Leave all of that behind and watch what God does when you are completely empty and broken and weak. We spend most of our time trying to be as strong as we possibly can because we're convinced that's when God can use us the most. But the New Testament tells a very different story, that God is most glorified when you are most broken and most weak and most empty because it's at that point that he can fill you. He can't fill you when you're full of yourself. So Abram journeyed to the land God showed him, and he made these altars along the way. So these moments of sacrifice are showing us that Abram's changing, and he's growing, and he's growing in his faith. But in that faith, there was still doubt. Abram would see God's faithfulness, but just moments uh, later, he would start questioning that faithfulness. And this happened shortly. This is uh, the last scripture we're going to read today. Go to chapter 12, verse 10. So he had moved to Canaan. He's living in this land. He went to the place God told him to go. And all of a sudden, a famine in the land hits. This is verse 10, chapter 12. 
Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter into Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, now hold on, what are you doing in Egypt? What are you doing? God didn't tell you to go to Egypt, he told you to go to Canaan. What are you doing in Egypt now? So now he's going to Egypt, place he's not supposed to be, and now he's having to make provisions for what's going to happen. Listen to what he tells his wife. He says, hey, look, when we're about to enter into Egypt, he said to his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, and they'll let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And isn't that every girl's fairy tale, right? To come to a place in life when things are difficult to, to, for your husband to just say, hey, look, at this dinner party that we're gonna go to, please just tell everyone you're my sister. It's as bizarre to you as it is to me. This is some weird scripture. But from Abram's point of view, this is the way that he wanted to rationalize his poor decisions as the head of his home. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with, uh, well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, oh, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So God told Abram, I want you to go to Canaan. He didn't say go to Egypt. Abram went to Canaan, he obeyed God, and when he got there, a famine hit, and Abram, instead of just staying put and trusting the God who brought me here can also sustain me here, decided that the best thing to do was to go to Egypt and try to find a way out of this mess. Now, as you'll read through the Old Testament, you'll find pretty historically and common that Egypt is always a symbol or a type of this world or this world's systems. It is the place you're supposed to leave from, not the place you're supposed to go to. You're supposed to come out of Egypt, not flee to it for comfort. And what Abram did was he panicked rather than trust God, and he went to the world for worldly possessions and provisions. What he decided was, a famine is hitting, and the best thing I can do is not trust God. The best thing I could do is to trust the world. I'm going to go to where I know I can get provision. The problem with this is that this compromise led to a relationship break with his wife. God called Abram out of this lifestyle, this lifestyle being running to the world for provisions, lying and compromising and living a life of deceit. This is exactly where he had just come from. This is where his family, his father, this is the culture he was just called out of, and just moments later he left this culture and he's running back to it because this is his safe place and this is what he knows. His doubt led to compromise, which led to more lies. His lack of faith in God forced him to compromise, which forced him to then try to cover up and lie. Can, 
Can you see from his life how one sin always leads to another? That nothing is ever independent of itself and that what sin always wants is more and more and more of your heart. It starts with fear. I'm afraid that God called me but won't sustain me. He called me but he won't provide for me. And that fear leads to compromise. God's ways can't be trusted, so I've got to go back and trust my ways. This line of thinking that we come to often when the pressure comes on, when things in life start pushing on us and we start questioning God's provision, we start questioning whether God is actually faithful. We're, we've, we've been here with Abram. We know what he feels. This pressure from the world comes on us and we feel like we've got to go to the world for the answers we need because we think that compromise is going to erase that pressure. Right? We're convinced that when the pressure from the world comes on, and it's funny, it's the world that gives us the pressure, and the pressure forces us to think, well, the world has the answers. It's kind of an interesting way that the enemy works. But our, our line of thinking is the same as Abram's. When the pressure comes on, when the tension comes on, when things are very difficult, we're convinced that we just need to compromise on our morals or our values or what we think, and that's going to erase the tension or the pressure. Compromise never erases the pressure. It only weakens your resolve. When you give in and you compromise from the pressure, the pressure never actually releases. What happens is you get weaker for the next time the pressure comes on. And so what happens is you get yourself in this habit of telling yourself how easy it is to say no to God and yes to this world. Sin becomes easier every time you compromise. And the reason why is because when you try to release the pressure through saying, I'll compromise or I'll, I'll give in on what God told me, that stuff never goes away. It just gets worse. And the enemy tells you it's going to get better, but it never actually does. It just makes it easier to sin the next time. But I want you to see how God treats Abram in the middle of his cycle of sin and his compromise, and his lying. Because how God treats Abram is how God treats us with grace and with mercy. Even in the midst of disobedience and weak faith, God sustains Abram. Why? Because God promised. And God always keeps his promises. And when God keeps his promises, it surrounds us with this thing that David talks about in Psalm 23, 6, where he says, surely goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. Why is goodness and mercy going to follow you? It's not because of how good you are or because you deserve it. It's because of how good he is and because of the decision that he made to love you and promise you that he would do it. So why does he sustain it and keep it? Because he promised and he's not going to break his own word. Even though you are unfaithful to him, he will not stop being faithful to you. And that's the beauty of what he offers. When he says, leave this world, where promises are rooted in how good you are. And come to my kingdom, where promises are rooted in how good I am. The leaving starts looking a lot more appealing because the entire relationship is based off of his goodness and his mercy. God is faithful. This is where I want to finish today. We've read through chapter um, 12, 11 today, and we followed the call of Abram. But I want to look, just as we finish today, at the call of Abram through the lens of the gospel. 
All right, I want you to look at what God told Abram to do through the lens of what God is calling us to do. All right, just follow me here. Just like Abram was called to leave his world, we are called to leave our world behind and walk by faith, okay? And just like Abram, this walk is gonna call into question God's provisions and his faithfulness. You're going to have moments and seasons in your life where you're gonna fall back on either God's promises or fall back into the world's promises. Your faith that you are walking by is going to be tested. And like Abram, there will be a temptation to supplement God's faithfulness by stockpiling provisions of the world. By saying the best thing that I can do to actually care for and take care and make sure that I'm staying faithful to God is to supplement his promises with some of the provisions from the world. But that is the worst decision you can make because all it does is lead to more compromises down the, down the road. All it does is water down what he's promised to you. And at some point, you can't tell what's God providing for you and what the world is providing for you. And at that point, you haven't left anything. The call is to leave this world, forsake this world, and if you're diluting the promises of God with this world, you haven't left anything. And that goes for all the things that you bring with you and you pack in your backpack and all the stuff, all the lots that you bring with you along the way. At some point, if your backpack is full of so many things from your past life, have you really ever left anything at all? And taking vacations and down in Egypt, it's, it's a waste of life. The invitation that God gives Abram and gives us is to forsake this world, to come into God's faithfulness and to rest in that and put the deepest roots we possibly can into faith that's gonna yield fruits of obedience. That's the promise. Leave this world behind. Leave your way of thinking and your attitudes and your thoughts and your destructive patterns, and your addictions, leave those things behind and follow Christ into a promise of a new kingdom where all of his blessings are based off of his good nature. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.